1: September 19th, 1988, Seoul, South Korea. At this moment, American diver Greg Louganis was as close to perfection as you could find. He was hailed as everything from the Superman of his sport to the Baryshnikov of diving, an apt reference because Greg was a former ballet dancer himself. It's day three of the summer games, and there are thousands of fans in the stands at Chomshel Pool cheering loudly. But Greg doesn't hear the cheers as he stands at the foot of the main diving board, waiting his turn. He is deep in his own world. Greg Louganis is the best diver to ever live. He doesn't let the noise of the crowd distract him. His mental mastery is singular. His focus is unprecedented. But today, something is off. What happens in the next moment is about to change everything. Greg's up. His plan is to do a reverse two-and-a-half somersault pike. He takes five steps to the edge of the springboard. Then he launches himself into the air.
0: We're at the diving venue, Chomshell Indoor Swimming Pool, the preliminaries of the men's three-meter springboard. In the ninth round of the preliminaries, Greg Luganus had an accident. We'll watch him in regular speed. And he hit his head coming past the board.
1: That's the NBC broadcast of the event. If you listen closely, you can hear the audience gasp in shock in the moments after Greg completed his dive in Seoul. The image of the back of Luganus' head striking the board on the way down will be played over and over for viewers at home. As they wait for Luganus to surface, the fans in attendance stand around in silence, their mouths open their hands over their faces. They were in shock, in fear. Greg's near catastrophe was one of the most terrifying moments ever in the Olympics. I'll never forget the image of that red blood stain on his white suit. What happened next in that pool in Seoul became the stuff of Olympic legend. Greg got out He got back on the diving board. He kept competing. Not only that, he went on to win gold, two golds. But then, years later, there was a twist, a big one. Greg's story of redemption turned out to be one of the most talked about, most controversial stories in America. How did the most celebrated diver in U.S. history become ostracized by U.S. diving? How come he didn't see himself on a Wheaties box until the year 2016? Only now, decades later, are we able to look back and fully grasp just how consequential it was. The Greg Louganis story is truly mind-blowing. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. And this episode is about one of the most memorable events in Olympic history, how it changed one man, Greg Louganis and the country. I was 10 years old the summer of the Seoul Olympics, and I remember vividly watching Greg dive. We knew he was the best in the world, and we knew if he won gold in Seoul, he would be the best diver ever to live. I was a competitive athlete at the time with my own Olympic dreams, and the games meant everything to me. Suffice to say, I was very excited to talk with him from his home in Malibu, California. Greg is 61 now, he has silver hair, but he looks fit enough to compete for another medal. Over three decades have passed since the Seoul Olympics, but for Greg, the emotions of September 19th, 1988 remain raw. How and why did things unfold the way they did that day and in the years after? Let's back up a bit and first understand how Greg became the best diver ever.
2: I got into gymnastics, which was my first love. Um, I wanted to make the Olympic team in gymnastics. I started diving when I was about eight because we had a pool built in our backyard, and it had a diving board. And I started trying some of my gymnastics stunts off the diving board at home, and my mom said, oh, we're going to get you lessons. I don't want you to kill yourself, so (laughs) we'll get you lessons.
1: When he was young, Greg struggled with feeling accepted. He was adopted when he was nine months old. And at school, he always felt like an outsider. Greg had dark skin, his biological dad was Samoan, and he stuck out at his predominantly white school. He also had a stutter. He was called all kinds of names. He was isolated and oftentimes depressed. Diving became Greg's refuge. He spent a lot of time at the local pool, and before he knew it, he was competing and winning. He reached a new level when he started working with a diving coach named Ron O'Brien. Ron wasn't like the other coaches. He was patient and calm with Greg. He understood that the key for Greg was to not see himself as a competitive athlete, but as a performer.
2: All of, all of what I did, all of my growing up, was about performance. It wasn't about competition. So, um, you know, basically my coach, Ron O'Brien, he gave me performance goals So like breaking 700 on three meter springboard, breaking 700 on 10 meter platform. And how do we do that? And what he did is he would create games for me to meet those challenges in practice.
1: I know that you didn't develop it as a strategy. It was just who you were and just really allow this this sort of singular focus that was not in the spirit of, I got to beat this person. I got to take this person out. And I think that that's, Such an incredible approach.
2: If you're looking at somebody else as your competition, then you're limiting limiting your success. You're limiting yourself to what you might be capable of.
1: Greg launched himself into the air as if he had no limits. He was just 16 years old when he qualified for the 1976 Olympics. Even crazier, he won a silver medal. In the early 80s, he began dominating international events he was becoming famous. With his handsome looks and clean image, he was featured in magazines and TV shows, and he began appearing in commercials.
2: Momentum. It works for Greg Luganis, and it can for you at Mercantile Bank.
1: But Greg was leading a dual life. He was a prominent athlete. He was also gay. In the 1980s, you couldn't be both. Reporters buzzed about rumors that Greg and a star diver on the women's U.S. team were an item. But the truth was that Greg was in a relationship, a toxic and eventually abusive relationship with a man named Jim. And in early 1988, Jim tested positive for HIV. There were so many unknowns then about HIV. The conversation in America around HIV and AIDS was full of misinformation, paranoia, and fear. It was common to hear nightly news headlines like this.
0: The Colorado legislature has passed, and the governor is expected to sign shortly, the bill which allows for criminal prosecution of doctors who fail to turn in the names of people who have AIDS or test positive for the virus. In extreme cases, the health department can also quarantine people with AIDS who refuse to change their sexual habits.
1: That terrifying news report says it all. If you were gay, it was a frightening time. But because of diving, Greg could disappear into his own world.
2: In the LGBTQAI community, you know, we were going to memorials and funerals. I mean, practically on the daily. But that wasn't a part of my world because I was so immersed with my diving. Um, I just heard about it. I was somewhat aware uh, of all that. You know, there was a mentality surrounding At that time was that, oh, it's killing the right people, you know, gay men, IV drug users and prostitutes.
1: But when his boyfriend Jim tested positive, the disease hit home. And in January 1988, Greg also tested positive for HIV. To Greg and to most others at the time, HIV was a death sentence. Greg just assumed that a positive test meant that competing in the Olympics was simply out of the question. But his doctor told him otherwise.
2: I was training in Florida and my home was in California. So my doctor at the time was my cousin and he gave me the news and he, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I feel like I should pack my bags and go home and lock myself in my house and wait to die. And he said, Greg, we don't know how long you've been uh, HIV positive. You know, you've been training for the Olympics and training would be the healthiest thing for you. I said, "Okay." And it, it was so much easier to focus on the diving, which I understood. And it gave me a positive focus.
1: He was just served a death sentence. But as an athlete, focusing on diving made sense. He was physically up to the task. Aside from his doctor, just a small handful of others knew about the positive test. Greg told his coach, Ron. Ron agreed with Greg. This was a private matter. Greg's secret was safe with him. So after getting the news, Greg didn't pack his bags. He sought treatment. He didn't disappear. Instead, he lasered in on his upcoming performance. The Seoul Olympics.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. On a bright and beautiful Saturday morning in Seoul, Koreans by the hundreds of thousands have That's the
1: opening of NBC's broadcast of the 1988 Olympics. You can hear the excitement in Bryant Gumbel's voice. It was the most watched event in U.S. television history with 194 million people tuning in. This was Greg's final Olympics. Greg had been on every US team since 1976 and made it known that after the 88 Olympics, he was going to retire from diving. Inwardly, he figured this was the last hurrah. He'd compete and go home to die. The stakes could not be higher. Day three of the games, the day of the fateful dive. One Sports Illustrated writer estimated that over his career, Greg had taken 180,000 dives in practice and competition. 180,000. But not once had Greg ever hit his head on the springboard dive like this one. Did you know, like, right from the get-go that you were off?
2: Yeah. Yeah. As I was taking off the board on my reverse two and a half pike, I, I knew I was, I, I stood it up a little straight. And so I knew I was going to be close to the board. But usually when you do something like that, it's your hands or arms that's going to hit the board. And I thought I was well past the board. And then I heard this big hollow thud. I was like, what was that? And I go crashing in the water. And then I, crashing in the water, I was like, shit, that was my head.
1: Over the years, the footage of Greg's dive has been played over and over and over. But it's still incredibly difficult to watch. Here's what happens. At the edge of the board, Greg reaches up with his arms and pushes off with his legs. The board kicks him into the air. He brings his legs up to begin a somersault, then spins once, then twice, As he straightens himself out of the second somersault and into the layout position, pretty much fully horizontal in the air, the top of his head strikes the end of the board. After impact, Greg falls awkwardly into the water. Greg told us earlier that he never saw himself as a competitor. He was a performer. He wanted to give everyone watching at home a performance that lived up to their expectations. The Olympics, after all, were a show. And so Greg's first reaction wasn't disappointment or devastation that his gold medal chances were likely gone. He wasn't even worried about his potential head injuries.
2: So my my first emotion was I I was embarrassed.
1: That was your first emotion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was embarrassed. I mean, you know, I was like, okay, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm supposed to be a pretty good diver. And I go and hit my headboard. And I'm thinking, how can I get out of this pool without anybody seeing me? And the entire world's watching.
1: As he got out of the water, his emotions changed from embarrassment to terror. Questions raced through his head. Did he cut his scalp? Was he bleeding? Did he get blood on anyone? Was he infecting others with HIV at that very moment?
2: I was so confused. I didn't want anybody touching it because I was afraid if I'm bleeding. I didn't know if I was bleeding. Um, You know, I just didn't want anybody touching, you know, the blood.
1: From the pool, Greg was immediately led into a training room by Dr. Jim Puffer, who is the head of medicine for the United States Olympic Committee.
2: So, Dr. came in, sewed me up. Um,
1: Puffer's not wearing gloves, right? When he sews you up?
2: You know what? There were no latex gloves. Wow. You know, because yep. you know, we were in Seoul, Korea. And, uh, right. And, you know, you don't always anticipate things like that happening, they just happen.
1: Consider what Greg was going through in this moment. He knows he's putting another person at risk, and it's Dr. Jim Puffer, who he's known since the 1970s. Dr. Puffer is sewing him up with no gloves. Does he stop him? Reveal his secret? Quit competing altogether? World-class athletes put in the hours and hours of training to master their craft in order to avoid the unexpected in the heat of competition. When he competed... Greg always had control over every move, every situation. But suddenly in Seoul, Greg had no control over anything. He didn't have much time before his next dive. He didn't know then that this moment would haunt him for years to come. Before he knew it, they were announcing his name for his next dive, an even more difficult dive. What would he do? And all Greg knew was that this was it. Last Olympics ever. His entire life had been dedicated to this moment, everything he'd sacrificed in his childhood and adolescence. He blocked out the chaos and got on the board. The show must go on.
2: And I remember um, I set the fulcrum. They announced the dive, Greg Luganis, United States, reverse one and a half or three and a half twists. And I could hear a gasp from the audience because they knew I was going in the same direction. And so I heard this audible gasp and I took a deep breath and patted my chest, like my heart was beating outside my chest. And then the people who saw that chuckled, they were like, you know, they go, Oh my God, he's afraid too. And I was thinking, Oh, my God. And I started laughing. And I was like, oh, my God, they're afraid for me. I'm afraid for me. And I realized, oh, these people want to see me succeed.
1: What happened next became Olympic legend.
2: I just had to let that go. And it's was like, OK, you know what? You know, it'll be what it'll be. I, it was the Olympics. I couldn't hold back. You know, I had to go for it. And so that's what I did. And it was just like kind of a surrender moment. And I did the dive. And um and it was funny, it was the highest scoring dive of the Olympics. And then I go to my coach and you know he 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 said he said, nice dive. And then he hits me on the shoulder and said, It's still too close. I'm like, oh
1: fuck. <laughs> Greg came back the very next day and he won gold. Despite suffering a head injury and bleeding in the pool. He won gold. A few days later, he competed in his second event, the platform.
2: This could very well be the final dive we see Greg Louganis make from the platform. Perfectly executed and a sleek, graceful finish, even though it may not have simply disappeared. And there you see his reaction and that of his coach.
1: Sleek, graceful. The announcers often used these words to describe Greg's dives. And he knew that this particular dive was good enough to win him his second gold medal. The cameras captured him collapsing into Ron's arms. He started to sob. They looked like tears of joy to the audience, but the tears were much more complicated than that. What the cameras didn't capture was what Greg said to Ron. Greg told him, Nobody we will ever know what we just went through. When he got to the medal podium, Greg was overcome by a flood of emotions. He felt pride when they put the medal around his neck. It was amazing to be the first male diver to sweep gold at consecutive Olympics. But as the national anthem played, Greg couldn't help but ask himself, would they be cheering for me if they knew I was gay and HIV positive? In the back of his mind was also the growing fear that in the same moment he had become a hero to the world, he may have infected someone with a deadly disease. And that fear would be something he would live with for years. That was your last dive, so you retire after that dive. You're the best diver to ever live. Are, are, are you beloved? Are you embraced in the diving community? Do you have endorsements? I mean, what, what does that picture look like?
2: Yeah, was I embraced by US diving? No. I mean I think they were um happy to see me go. I in and, and probably regret that I had as many records as I have I've had. You know. Um so it's yeah, it's it's a strange thing. They weren't they weren't kind to myself or they weren't kind to my coach, Ron O'Brien.
1: Greg suspected that the chill he and Ron received from the diving community had a lot to do with the rumors about his sexuality. After Seoul, Greg stepped away from U.S. diving, and he receded from the spotlight. He was dealing with a lot in his personal life. Greg was untangling from the abusive relationship with Jim. His father was diagnosed with cancer and dying. Even though Greg was a world-class athlete, he was in and out of the hospital with health issues related to HIV. By now, he knew that his condition— had developed into full-blown AIDS. Back then, there weren't a lot of options. The U.S. wasn't putting many resources towards AIDS research, but Greg took as many treatment options as he could in order to keep the HIV in check. One option was AZT, an experimental medication he took every four hours around the clock. During the 88 games, he actually had to sneak AZT into Seoul to keep his secret. Over time, his health was, for the most part, stable as he took a range of HIV antiviral drugs that became available. Eventually, he was having more good days than bad, and he was opening up little by little. Although Greg was close to his mother, Frances, he'd always been distant from his father. But when Peter Luganus was diagnosed with cancer in 1989, it was an opportunity to heal.
2: I'm really grateful that uh, I took care of my dad the last six weeks of his life. You know, that whole year when he was diagnosed with cancer, um, it was a real healing time because that's when I came out to him about my HIV status. And then it became a crusade for life and quality of life. In
1: 1993, he even took a role in an off-Broadway play in New York called Jeffrey.
2: And I played Darius. And he also dies of complications with AIDS. So night after night. I'm playing this character able to live out my fantasies but also face my fears, you know, because each night I, you know, march in a parade and each night I die.
1: The play was fictional, but Greg's performance was truer than any performance he'd given as an Olympic athlete, and that made the experience incredibly intense.
2: But I felt that... Darius delivered the most poignant message to the lead character, Jeffrey. It's when he turns to Jeffrey as his spirit, saying, Jeffrey, hate AIDS, not life.
1: Greg was beginning to feel like he was ready to open up even more. Halfway through his run in Jeffrey, he decided to write a book.
2: I felt at that time, I felt like I was living on an island with barely a phone for communication to the outside world because that's what secrets do to you. They keep you apart from everybody.
1: Greg was tired of living inauthentically. He was tired of secrets, and he was tired of living in fear. Although he believed he would be ostracized and his reputation would be destroyed, he could no longer keep this secret. Greg came out in a videotaped message for the Gay Games in
2: 1994. Hi, I'm Greg Laganis. It's exciting to be a part of an event that demonstrates true Olympic ideals, to show ourselves and the world how strong we are as individuals and as a community. Welcome to the Gay Games. It's great to be out and proud.
1: In the message, Greg sounds confident and steady. The next year, 1995, was the release of his book, Breaking the Surface. A week before its publication, Greg sat down for an interview with Barbara Walters. The interview made big headlines. On 2020, one of the biggest TV shows at the time, Greg revealed that he was gay, HIV positive, and that it had progressed into AIDS. He also revealed the guilt that he'd been carrying around all those years, the belief that in the moments after his accident in Seoul, he could have infected others, including his friend, Dr. Puffer. Greg had talked to enough doctors in the aftermath of Seoul to know that even if he had started bleeding in the pool, there was an extraordinarily low risk of infecting anyone because HIV doesn't spread in water and chlorine kills any virus it contacts. The only people who he put at risk were those who came in direct contact with his blood, like Dr. Puffer. He was told the risk was small, but it was there.
2: Um, I, had, I had assumed that being a doctor and dealing with blood and, and that sort of thing that he would be tested. And he didn't get tested until I told him. And I knew his family, I danced with his wife. I you know, he's you know, he's not just a doctor.
1: And he's fine.
2: And he's fine.
1: But you didn't know that for six years.
2: No. Craig. That was incredible, um, Guilt. um, Irresponsible.
1: The way Barbara reacts when she says Greg, it's as if she instantly understood the weight Greg must have been carrying around all those years. It was just a few months before that interview that Greg told Puffer that he was HIV positive. But Puffer wasn't angry. Greg had put the doctor at risk, but Puffer believed that Greg's decision... Whether or not to reveal he was HIV-positive was a personal one. The International Olympic Committee seemed to agree. After Greg's revelation, they didn't change any policies or procedures. They still don't ask athletes to disclose their HIV status. In 1991, NBA star Magic Johnson had revealed that he was HIV-positive, which helped with the stigma surrounding the disease. By the mid-90s, understanding of HIV had improved. By then, it was becoming clear that the likelihood of an athlete spreading HIV to another during competition was extremely small. Still, there was plenty of ignorance surrounding the disease. Greg's revelation that he had AIDS upended the Greg Louganis story. Tabloids splashed Louganis' photo on its cover about his, quote, deadly secret. Newspaper columnists declared that Louganis shouldn't be called a hero— Luganus' fellow Olympians were quoted saying that he had an obligation to tell Puffer. Things got ugly. There were so many reporters at Greg's doorstep that he called a local security force. Anti-gay protesters appeared at Greg's book events. This was a controversial, polarizing moment. But for Greg, it was a release. For the first time, he felt free. His life as a performance was finally over. Not only that, he began to see that his story was really resonating with others. Strangers who were outsiders and outcasts their whole life, just like him.
2: I remember being in Atlanta, and um, this police officer who is like my bodyguard, you know, she was this beautiful, you know, Amazon woman. You know, she was just like, oh, you know, uh, she handed me a bullet. And she said, this, this is to signify that I would take a bullet for you. And I want to thank oh you for what, for what you did. And we're both like in tears, you know, and hugging each other. And it's like, oh my God, you know, but it's, it's so fascinating because in the tears, there's so much healing.
1: Did you finally feel at peace after this book tour and after um, getting honest and, and being able to be yourself? I mean, did that, did that give you peace inside?
2: Yes, definitely, because then it was a layer of, of who I was that I didn't have to hide anymore.
1: Greg may finally have found some peace, but that doesn't mean his life was perfect. He still fought depression. He still saw far too many friends and loved ones die of AIDS. And perceptions don't change overnight either which is why that moment in 1995 was just the beginning of a new chapter for Greg and for the country. Greg coming forward was a defining moment because it helped force the country to talk more openly. Greg was back in the spotlight, taking on a new role as an activist for the LGBTQAI community, for HIV and AIDS awareness. Greg paved the way for new generations to do the same, In 2012, Olympic gymnast Jai Wallace saw Greg talking to TV host Piers Morgan about his HIV status, and decided, Okay, well, if Greg can talk about it, I can talk about it too. Hearing stories like that motivates Greg to remain front and center to this day. In June of 2021, Greg went on CBS This Morning to talk about the need for more awareness and education surrounding AIDS.
0: Greg, I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding about this virus. What's your feeling about that?
2: There is. I mean, I, I just got a message yesterday from a mother whose son, sero converted and she said that he's giving up um, because it's so, it's so scary and terrifying. Um, but if you're treated, if you have a undetectable viral load, then you can't transmit the virus.
1: Not only is Greg still relentlessly committed to AIDS activism, as you heard in that clip, today he is still the greatest diver ever. He's still the only male diver to sweep gold in two straight Olympics. When you watch his dives, they still take your breath away. When he's standing tall on the board, ready to take flight, I still see an incredible athlete who pushed the limits. I'm still in awe. And Greg finally reconnected with USA Diving. The uplifting reunion was covered positively in HBO's 2014 documentary, Back on Board, Greg Luganis.
2: When Steve Foley became high performance director of USA Diving, he came to the house, and he said, how do we get you back involved in diving? And I like looked at him and I said, ask. He said, you've never been asked? I said, no, nor have I felt welcome. Steve said that he can't do anything about the past, but we can move forward. So then we started talking about what I had to offer, and what we came up with was mentoring.
1: All it took to reunite with U.S. Diving? Simply being asked. Now he has become a mentor to young divers aspiring to break his records. His biggest message to them is that the diver who wins gold is the one who makes the fewest visible mistakes, not the one who is the most perfect. Because there's no such thing as perfection, even when it comes to our Olympic heroes. Greg Louganis accepted that truth. Ultimately, helping the rest of us to accept that truth was maybe his most daring and greatest dive into the deep end. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment, in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Jenner Pasqua and Marcy Thompson. It was written by Albert Chen. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Levino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you like to listen on. This is Torched. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.